One of the most poignant and powerful stories in the Bible is the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. God had promised to make of Abraham a great nation. He had promised to give him the land of Canaan. He had promised to make him a blessing to all the nations of the earth. He had even promised that his offspring, his descendants, would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But his wife Sarah was barren, and for many, many years they had no child, and God's promise remained unfulfilled. But one day, God came to Abraham and told him that about a year from then, his wife Sarah would have a child, a son. And about a year later, just as God had said, the happy day came. A child was born to Abraham and Sarah. They named him Isaac, and they held him in his arms. And we can just imagine how delighted and joyful And grateful they were for that precious little boy. After years of barrenness, years of waiting, not only did they finally have a child, but this was the child, the son that God had promised to them, the son who would inherit the promises that God had given to Abraham. He was the first of what was supposed to be a myriad of descendants. And that is part of why it must have seemed so baffling to Abraham when God said to him in Genesis 22, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Over the many years of barrenness, Abraham's faith had been tested and refined and strengthened. And here in this moment, the quality of his faith shines through dramatically. He does not question God's command. He does not ask how God can possibly keep his promise to give Abraham numerous offspring if Isaac is going to die. He simply obeys taking Isaac up to the mountain that God shows him, binding Isaac as a sacrifice, laying him on the wood. And just as he was about to slaughter his own beloved son, the angel of the Lord calls out to Abraham and tells him to stop. And then he says these words, Now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God, of course, knew that Abraham feared him, as God knows all things. But Abraham's actions demonstrated his fear of God in a powerful and undeniable way. Now, here's my question. If Abraham's willingness to offer up his only son shows us in a powerful way that Abraham trusted and feared God, then what does God's willingness to deliver up His own Son show us about God? To get an answer to that question, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. 
Romans 8.32 will be our text this morning. In Romans 8, uh, you run out of superlatives. There are just not enough good things to say about all of these verses and all of these promises. Romans 8.32 is another one of those verses that is just almost unbelievably rich and powerful and potent. And I hope that some of the hope and uh, understanding and encouragement that is supposed to come to us through this verse will take root in our hearts as we meditate on it together in this sermon. So let me read for us Romans 8.32. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's start with that first phrase. God did not spare his own son. What does it tell us about God that he did not spare his own son? First, we need to remember that God was not obligated to give his son for us. He was, he was under no obligation to send his son into the world for our salvation. God could have done many other lesser things and still been gracious still been good, still been merciful. Remember that Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 that God shows love for his enemies by sending rain and sunshine even on the wicked. Simple things, seemingly. To have rain on the just and the unjust. To cause the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. But God doesn't have to do that. God doesn't owe us that. God shows love even for those who hate Him in the simple everyday mercies of rain and sunshine. The story of the flood back in the book of Genesis in the days of Noah is a reminder that all of humanity has been affected by Adam's sin, Adam's fall and rebellion against God. All of us are wicked All of us have sinned against God, the Bible says, and the wages of sin is death. And the story of the flood reminds us that what we deserve is not life, but death. What we deserve is not salvation, but judgment. God does save as he saved Noah and his family, but he does not have to. So God could have given us many good things and continued to be gracious and merciful and faithful and yet stopped short of sending His Son. He did not have to send Jesus into the world. And we're so used to, thankfully, in in some sense, we hear this good news and, and have heard this good news so many times throughout our lives that we can begin to think that that's just the kind of thing God had to do or ought to have done, but he didn't have to. He could have spared his own son. He could have kept from sending his son into the world. He didn't have to do it, but he did. God did not withhold from us what was most precious, what is most precious to him, his own son. Just as Isaac 
was so precious to Abraham and to Sarah. So to the thousandth degree, the Son of God is precious to God the Father for Him to send His own Son, to not spare His own Son was for Him to give up not only what is most precious to Him, but what is most precious in the universe. There is nothing greater, nothing more valuable, nothing more worthy, nothing more precious than God Himself, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So for God the Father to send God the Son into the world is to give for, to us and for us what is most precious. And notice that God was giving what is most precious for those who are not even worthy of the gift. You see, when Abraham offered up his son Isaac, it was no doubt a heart-rending, difficult thing to do. And yet, he was giving back to God what God had given to him. He was giving up something extremely precious, and yet the one he was offering his son up to is the only one who's worthy of all that we have, of all that we give. But in this case, God is giving up what is most precious for those who are not worthy, who are not deserving. He, he does not owe this to us. We have not given anything to him that he should repay us, as Paul will say later in this letter. He's giving up his own son for the unworthy, for the sinful, for the unrighteous. As Paul said back in chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was while we were still sinners that God spared not his own son. Think what he could have spared him. He could have spared his son the humiliation of leaving the throne room of heaven and unceasing worship and praise to come down into the world and be born as a baby, to become a man, to suffer, to die even. He could have spared him all of that if he had not given him up for us. And yet Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He didn't spare him, but he did give him up. And in giving him up for us all, in sending him into the world, he handed him over to humiliation, to mockery, to persecution, to betrayal, to one of the most excruciating forms of death ever devised. Acts 2.23 says that this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's Peter preaching to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. And he says, you crucified and killed Jesus. But here's something you need to understand. Jesus' death was not a surprise, was not a shocking tragedy. 
It was something God had planned. It was something God had put in motion. It was something God had determined would happen. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's the same thing Paul is saying here in Romans, that God gave up His Son for us all. When we think about our salvation, often our focus is mainly on the Son, on Jesus, on His willingness to suffer, on His willingness to die, on the love that He showed for us by laying down His life for us. And that is right and good, but we must never neglect the fact that the plan began, so to speak, if we can even speak in terms of time when it comes to God's eternal plan. God's plan, so to speak, began with the Father's determination to send the Son. Our salvation is not about the Son sort of convincing the Father to save us and love us. It is the Son in love carrying out the plan designed by the Father in love. God the Father gave His Son for us. John 3.16, of course, says the same thing. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God gave us the most precious gift it was possible to give, His own Son. And He gave Him up, Paul says, for us all, for all who believe, for all who belong to Christ. He has given Him up for all of us, not only Jews, but also Gentiles. Even though it was to the Jews that God had promised the Messiah, that it was among the Jews that God sent the Messiah, His Son, Jesus. He came to the Jews, but not only for the Jews. He came also for the Gentiles, not only for the insiders, but also for the outsiders. And He gave His Son not only for those who we might classify as sort of moderate sinners. You know, they're not perfect, but they're not the most notorious, terrible people in the world. It's not just for people like that. It was for even the worst of sinners that He sent His Son. Paul says in another place in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, he says, "...the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance." That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. So Paul says, Jesus came into into the world to save sinners, And He came into the world to save even the worst of sinners. That's me, Paul says. And He saved me, the worst of sinners, so that all the rest of you would know how patient He is, how merciful He is, how willing He is to give eternal life to even the worst of rebels, the chief of sinners. So what Paul is giving us here is is the gospel in a nutshell. God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. 
that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned against God. All of us have ignored Him, failed to thank Him. All of us have scorned people He made in His image, have wounded people that He loves. All of us have heard what God has said, have known what God wants us to do, and yet we have turned the other way and done what we wanted to do. All of us have heard the good news, most likely, at least once in our lives, and ignored it. All of us, in one way or another, and in a thousand ways and more, have sinned against God. He owes us nothing. And yet He has loved us. And not with a, not with a moderate love. He has loved us by sending into the world to suffer and die in our place His own beloved Son, the most precious gift He could give, the most costly sacrifice He could send. He has given to us so that anyone and everyone who confesses their sin and turns to Jesus and trusts in Him, receives from Him eternal life, adoption into God's family, forgiveness of sin, a verdict of righteousness declared by God. There's no condemnation for you. You become a child of God, a member of His family. The Spirit of, the Spirit of God Himself comes to dwell inside of you. All of that and more freely given to everyone who trusts in this precious Son that God has given, sent into the world to live, to die, to rise, who's even now seated at His right hand and will one day return for all those who believe. And they'll be raised, will be raised, receiving immortal resurrected bodies ushered into the new creation to dwell with Him forever. This is glorious good news and it's for everyone who will believe and this is what unites Christians of every denomination, every nationality and ethnicity and language, every age and time. All of us who are believers in Christ are united in this truth, we have received the gift that God has given, the gift of His own Son, whom He gave up for us all. Now, all of that is glorious, wonderful good news. But none of it is new. Paul has told us this over and over throughout the book of Romans. We read this over and over throughout the scripture. So this is not what is new in this verse. Paul reminds us of these glorious truths of how God has not spared his son, but sent him into the world for us all so that we will come to the conclusion that he expounds for us at the end of verse 32. Here's how Paul wants us to think now. Once we have believed and understood the gospel, we have received this almost unbelievable gift from God, and then he says, okay, if that's true, 
and we know that it is, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to get us to think logically and biblically about how God acts toward us. You see, in Christianity uh, today, there's, there's a lot of emphasis on how we feel, on our emotions. And, that, and that's not bad. Right? The Bible makes clear that we are to rejoice in the Lord, that we are to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Th- those are good things. Our emotions are important. But oftentimes, our emotions are emphasized too much. There, there's too much emphasis on the way we feel about God. And that's one of the reasons why there's often so much emphasis about the music and the mood when we come to church. Again, None of those things are bad in and of themselves. Our emotions are important. But if we emphasize our emotions and don't also emphasize the importance of right thinking, biblical thinking, what we can call here in this verse gospel logic, if we don't emphasize that as well, then we are leaving out something essential and important. Paul wants us to learn Not only to feel the right things toward God, but to think the right things about God. Let me just give you a few examples from the book of Romans. In chapter 6, verse 11, he says, You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, you've been united to Christ by faith. You've shared in His death and resurrection. And so whether or not you feel like you have died and risen with Christ, whether or not you feel like you have experienced a sort of death and resurrection so that you're now a new creation, whether or not you feel that way, you need to think about yourself that way so that you can live that way. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Later in in chapter 8, verse 11, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So there he's saying, look, I've suffered a lot. I've endured a lot of hard things. But I've also spent a lot of time meditating on the promises of God about what he's going to do for us when Christ returns, what he has prepared for us. And I've weighed both of those things in my mind, and there's just no comparison. And I say that because I want you to think that way as well. I want you to weigh your circumstances in the scales and I want you to think about the promises of God and I want you to weigh them in your mind so that you will see in the midst of your hardships that there's coming a day that's going to so outweigh what's hard now with the glory that God is going to reveal to you then that there's going to be no comparison. Perhaps most famously in chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The way that your life is changed, the way that you resist the pressure from the world to conform to the world's ways is by by your mind being renewed, by thinking about the truth. And so what Paul does here is he says, Look, God didn't spare His own Son. He didn't withhold Him from us, even though He could have. Instead, He gave Him up for us all. So if that's true, 
What in the world do you think God would withhold from you? If there is anything good, anything that you need, anything that would help you on the way to becoming more like Jesus, anything necessary for your salvation, anything necessary to enable you to live faithfully following Christ, if there is anything you need, do you really think that God would not give it to you? He's already given you the most costly thing He could give. He has already sent to you His own precious Son. Isn't that enough to show you how much He loves you, how generous He is, how gracious He is, how giving He is? Do you really think that He would withhold from you anything that is good for you? No. No way. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If He's given us the most costly thing, won't He also give us less costly things if we need them? Of course He will. What Paul is teaching us, reminding us, helping us to see here is that God is far more generous, far more gracious, far more willing to give to us than most of us have ever imagined or dared to hope. If this verse would take hold of our hearts, we would pray and face hardship with more boldness and confidence in God than we have before. And this verse also teaches us that if there is something God is withholding from us, something we've asked for, something we've prayed for, and He said no or not yet, there must be a good reason. It can't be because He's not generous. It can't be because He begrudges giving good things to us. That can't be the reason. There must be a good reason. A reason that will benefit us behind His saying no or wait. It's not hard to draw the right conclusion about Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his only son. The only reason he was willing to do that was because he had learned to trust God even when things didn't make sense to him. And it should not be hard for us to draw the right conclusion from God's willingness to send his son as a sacrifice for our sin either. It means he is willing to give us whatever is good, whatever is necessary, even if it means giving up His own Son. If that logic takes hold in your heart and in your mind, it will change you. And I pray that it does. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your marvelous grace, the costly gifts of Your Son. And we pray that as we think about You sending Jesus into the world. And we think about what He suffered and what He endured and what He gave up for our sake and what You gave up in sending Him for our sake. We pray that that would help us to see and believe more deeply than before how great Your love is. How deep Your graciousness and generosity really goes so that we would trust You more deeply and be more confident in your love for us than we ever have been before.
We pray you'd help us and do this in us by your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen.